Welcome to the Business That Matters Spotlight. I'm Warren Coughlin, founder of this podcast and business coach to ethical entrepreneurs who want to build a business that matters. In short, I help you end chaos and gain control over your business so that you predictably and reliably achieve the profits, the lifestyle, and the impact you strive for through a team you can trust without the stress and frustration. When you experience this, you're more confidently able to make the world or just your corner of it a bit of a better place. At The Spotlight, we believe that every entrepreneur has a unique message that can positively impact the world and inspire others to do the same. Stick around to the end of the show. We'll reveal how you can be our next guest. Let's get started. Hello and welcome back to the Business That Matters Spotlight. This is your host, Warren Coughlin. I'm here with Stephen Aguier, founder of Green Hammer, which was created 20 years ago in 2002 which is extraordinary because Green Hammer is a designer and builder of net zero buildings and, uh, and living buildings based in Portland, Oregon. And I'm really excited to have Stephen here because he's, he's really, he's committed a bunch of his adult life to proving, not just, not just to doing the work, but I love this, to kind of proving that healthy carbon-free buildings are the best choice. And I like that. It's kind of like making a message as well as just running a business. And Green Hammer is not only a certified B Corp, but has twice been recognized as a B Corp Best of the World honoree. So I want to hear a little bit about that. So welcome to the show, Stephen. Yeah, so excited to be here, Warren. Um, it's funny because just before the show, as we should have, Warren and I discussed our, my last name, which is difficult, is Aguier, but we forgot my first name, which is Stefan. <laughs> oh. My apologies, which, Stefan. It's just like uh, Stefan Curry, you know, if you're, like, if you're a basketball fan. But um, I, I, you know, I think my father named me Stefan Aguier for a reason it's you know it makes you have to stand up for yourself your entire life like, ah, no that's me um yeah so we're we're a certified benefit uh corporation certified b corp we've been best for the world best for the environment for a few years running we're gonna be announcing uh in just a few weeks more great news on that front once um they officially announced their this year's new best uh, best honorees for B Corp. So we're pretty excited about that. Um, was, how many people would you be, quote, competing against in that kind it's of? It's about 4,000 uh, B Corps internationally last I checked. So uh, that would mean we're in the top 5% from our um, certification score. And what, is and best, what does best mean in that context? Is it impact or is it compliance with checklist? Like what is, when you say you're the best within the B Corp, what does that actually mean? Uh, it's all of those things. So um, it's actually called an impact score. And so it's not just, you know, checking the boxes. Some of it are quite literally just, yes, you've got these types of benefits or, um, you know, your pay scales and wage bands are within these ranges or certain things like that that'll get you better uh, or, or scores. There are other things like how are you actually impacting your community and what's your engagement with your community? How are you impacting the environment? Uh, what's your engagement with the environment? So they have these very uh, specific impact uh, questions and scores around like social environmental impact. And so, um, you know, it's an imperfect system like anything in the world, but I would say that I do feel really strongly that we have a very strong environmental impact and strong social impact. And I, I feel like it's a very fair way of measuring businesses yeah. uh, in that regard. And it's very thorough, it's an intense, process I think for everyone involved and uh, it does take um, you know what we call in the industry beekeepers so in my own staff I have a couple beekeepers folks who are kind of constantly like hey you know tapping um, tapping on the window and saying hey we gotta we gotta make some changes here we've got to make some updates hey are, we're gonna start dropping in our score in these areas um, and it it does just definitely hold you to a standard that you wouldn't otherwise um, always be able to hold yourself to. So I, I think it's fantastic and I mean, awesome. Holding yourself to that standard, is it, um, is it just the effort or is there, are there cost implications for doing that? There are costs and benefits like anything, right? Um, there's definitely some costs. I mean, what we recognize is that, you know, for us, you know, greenwashing, I think has always been something that I've been really concerned about in the industry mm -hmm. uh, in general, you know, and uh, when I started out in green building, there would be things like, oh, you can have, there's like the new resilient green vinyl, <laughs> you know, there's nothing, nothing environmentally sound about vinyl. Um, and so when you're, 
you're kind of looking at all this stuff, you really want to be able to say, okay, let's hold, let's, let's dig through and actually figure out what is healthy, what is, um, what is uh, going to benefit people, what's going to benefit the planet. And, um, you know, when we kind of built our own standards within the company, unless we have something that we can certify to, like in projects, we can certify um, to lead standards, or as you mentioned, we did the living building challenge, the world's most rigorous green building standard, but there's a, a variety of them out there. But uh, until 2007, when um, B Corps became a thing, there wasn't really a standard from a business operation standpoint. Mm -hmm. So we were already kind of doing all of this stuff, but yes, it does take extra costs uh, to, you know, have people track it internally, but there's also added benefits because now we actually have these key performance indicators that we didn't really have before that kind of the, uh, B Corps, uh, you know, the B lab in general kind of kicked us in the butt, say, Hey, we need this data from you if you want to score higher. And so we started extracting the data, collecting the data. And then when you pump that out to your staff, like, and your clients, people are pretty excited about, you know, the amount of carbon that you're saving and, uh, you know, the, the other types of impacts that you're going to have, the amount of volunteer hours, whatever else it might be. Um, right. So there's, you know, there's an opportunity cost there. We might have staff working otherwise, specifically on a project that's um, an ex, you know, uh, for a client, they're now working more on an internal project. And so um, I do think, yeah, there's some indirect costs that go into it. There's also your own choices as a business, you, you know, uh, it depends. For me, I don't, we don't make decisions to just up our B Corp score. We evaluate where we can improve and where that aligns with who we are as a company, where that, you know, best uh, accentuates our own company values or um, our own product, right? So what we're trying to produce for our clients, and wherever those things all, you know, unite, then we'll spend time and money. So let's let's go back to the beginning. So like why? 20 years ago, back in 2002, what what made you want to jump into the green building game? Yeah. Um you know, I had a few influences I think in my life and one was you know, my father I think identified my independent streak early on and encouraged me that maybe small business or a business of my own might make sense someday versus um, you know, I've always, I think, challenged authority uh, growing up and just uh, as a teenager had a lot of angst and felt like, you know, as a society, we're kind of going down the wrong path. And I didn't really have solutions, but I um, had a lot of angst about the things that we weren't doing well. And that had some influences. I, um, you know, I worked as a Youth Conservation Corps member in college. And one of the my basically the instructor, the, um, you know, our, our, our head ranger who was head of our group, he was a bit of an extreme environmentalist and, you know, um, pretty out on the fringe. And he and I actually didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things. He was a, a former earth first guy. And, um, but we challenged what each other. We talked a lot. Earth first guy. What's that? What does that mean? An earth first guy? So that, that was a fringe environmental group that I don't think exists anymore, but they were known for um, doing whatever was necessary to protect the planet. And so they might be, you know, um, you know sabotaging U.S. Forest Service equipment or uh, things like that. Uh, they're, they're definitely into heavy mischief in that way. Um, but he really challenged my thinking in ways I had never really thought about before and opened my eyes to things like, you know, just the challenges of um, infrastructure and things like, well, even hydropower and flooding of lands and all of these things that have just happened in our history. And I started to, that, you know, started to get a whole nother level of angst for me. Um, and then I went to Italy and I ended up um, living in Italy for just about three years. I worked on a 1200 acre organic farm estate there. Um, I actually went to volunteer. I barely had any money. This was right after college. I deferred student loans and I had gotten a job as a security brokerage firm in Boston. And growing up in Vermont, I really had a hard time being in the city and then having this environmental angst behind me. Um, we were serving clients like Monsanto and some big agricores that I wasn't really aligned with. And um, 
got an invite to go to Italy for a week to volunteer on this farm. And I was like, I'm going to do it. So I bought, a, you know, an open-ended ticket that you could buy then, right? Where you could basically yeah. go when you wanted to and come back on the same ticket. I came back two and it almost, almost three years later. Wow. Uh, on that same ticket. How old were you? Uh, I would have been my early 20s. So I think I came back when I was 24, 25, 25. Nice. And um, while I was there, we worked on buildings. Um, I, I got hired pretty quick. They needed handy people that could actually speak to a whole lot of unhandy Americans and Canadians that were coming um, as interns and could kind of communicate between the Italians uh, working staff and the interns. And I didn't speak any Italian, but I spoke grunting construction worker pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> I'd uh, grown up doing a lot That's of like landscaping and, and framing construction, you know, side jobs just was, I was attracted to the outdoor physical labor. Um, and so I got hired pretty quick in that realm and did all types of things from metalwork to carpentry. And, you know, one of the events that really impacted me, most of the buildings, like I said, 700 years, 800 years old, um, we were repairing a beam in one of the homes. And this uh, beam was a chestnut. It's kind of how all of the um, framing is done in Italy, the chestnut and, and like stone. And this big chestnut beam was about a meter in diameter and we actually had horses and stuff pull it out of this building the second floor uh and the owner of the estate brought me to a map room and I don't know how old this map was but it seemed really really old <laughs> and it was really a painting and on it was um different sections and you could recognize it was a map of the estate you could also recognize it was very old and he pointed out the language in some of the areas and one of the said legno, which just means like um, lumber in Italian. Legno means firewood, uh, which is very similar <laughs> to, uh, like linguistically, but uh, very different. Um, so they would grow, you know, um, certain parts of the forest for certain different things is what the map was showing. Nuts, the chestnuts themselves was also like there's a harvest, like those are very different trees than the, the lumber trees of chestnuts. So interesting. Um, group of species. But anyway, we drive out to this section of the forest that was labeled Leño, and they had been managing this forest to basically grow these 200 plus year old um, straight chestnut trees that uh, we basically went and we harvested one and we replaced the beam in that building with one of those chestnut logs. And the planning and like the forethought that goes into, you know, maintaining and growing those trees in such a way that when you needed it again in a couple hundred or five hundred years, I'm not even really sure. Um, wow, it could very well been the original beam, there. which is 700 years old, right? And um, I, I was just totally floored. And it really made me rethink like, you know, in the United States, we have this kind of planned obsolescence and it includes buildings. You know, most, you know, homes and residences have a 25 year lifespan uh, before you have to replace critical infrastructure like your roof or siding and that sort of things. Um, and I didn't know how to translate that to a business at that time, but I knew I wanted to um, get involved I came to the United, back to the United States and was like, hey, I, you know, thinking like, I really want to do these like amazing buildings, but you can't build castles and stone and logs <laughs> in the United States. Um, so I got engaged with uh, the EBA, Environmental Engineering Builders Association. And they're a bunch of like building science geeks. And I, had, I knew a few building science geeks in Montana and um, I got to visit No and started reading books voraciously. I uh, had one friend say, hey, what are you doing? I'm moving um, out west. I'm going to Portland. I need a roommate. And I was like, oh, seems like a great spot as any startup business in green buildings. So I, I went to Portland. I knew my the one person. I had my pickup truck and uh, student debt and a credit card and no savings. Um, and just started knocking on doors and doing like handyman green building services. That was kind of the first 
uh, iteration of who I was, um, you know, floor like for stewardship council certified flooring and uh, trying to, you know, use healthy, you know, glues and paints and things like that, that were pretty avant-garde at the time. Um, were people receptive <laughs> to it at the time or were, were they thinking you were uh, a nut bar? Uh, you know, I remember standing in line at Par Lumber. It's our, one of our local lumber yards. And, you know, they're calling people up and they're like, oh, Green Hammer, blah, 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 I got your order. And this guy in the back's like, green, green buildings, like, you're going to go out of business in a year, guaranteed. <laughs> you know, he's yelled at everyone, I was like, ah, like, no one wants green building, blah, blah, blah. And I was, I remember thinking, like, you know, he might be right. This has been pretty tough. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, I think I got by being fairly priced more than um, green building at first. And then, you know, there was a wave that started to hit in around 2004 uh, through 2000, well, till the Great Recession to 2008 or nine, where like kind of earth driven or environmentally driven materials, um, healthy materials was a really huge, huge part of the industry suddenly, where people were becoming more and more aware of how toxic materials were. And so I was doing tons of research around materials and where where we could get healthy materials. Um, and in that also dug into the lead standard, um, which is leadership environmental, leadership and energy and environmental design. So that's the United States Green Building Council. And they had this lead pilot program uh, where you could, you know, build to lead standard and be some of the first homes in the United States that would be building the standard. And so I really wanted to do that. And we ended up getting part of becoming part of the lead standard um, or lead pilot program and built some of the first lead for homes in the United States. And that must have been back in 2005 and six. Um, and we're really kind of going for the highest scores we possibly could. So I know we had the highest lead score for a few years <laughs> anyway. Um, nice. But yeah, at the time, I would say it was uh, a lot of it was about there was definitely energy efficiency was a big thing. Um, but materials uh, was really where the industry was focusing a lot, the green building industry in, in general. And I, you know, stumbled into the math on impact around, you know, just energy and how much impact a building has um, from just use energy standpoint and started to postulate that that was much more impactful than the materials. And so 2006, I uh, brought on a native German, Alex Butzel, and he and I started talking a lot about this concept of passive house, which was a German-born um, standard. And there, at the time, we didn't know it, but there was one building being built in the United States uh, toward the passive house standard, and it was what was going to be a future employee of mine, Dylan Lamar, um, was at a, um, a University of Illinois um, and he basically was a student architect and working with one of the um, chief passive house scientists at the time and created the first, you know, certified small passive house building. Passive well, we started making all these. If I, it's, it's about like being really tightly sealed so that energy doesn't seep out. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So that was like this 1970s idea that was born in the United States, really this like, okay, if you super insulate enough and make it tight enough. Um, you can eliminate the mechanical heating and cooling systems on homes in cold climates. And, you know, then they, but they didn't quite figure out in the United States in the 70s how to ventilate that well. <laughs> and then a lot of people just try to do it and uh, didn't understand where to put the um, weather barriers versus the vapor barriers and all those different things. We had failures all over the place in the late 70s, early 80s, and it was kind of tossed out. But then a German scientist, Wolfgang Feist, in the 90s, um, basically brought together a bunch of physicists under government contract and figured out that actually this has a makes a ton of sense. And they basically now um, it's code to build to passive house standard if it's a new building uh, in Germany and Austria. And it's it's definitely the the guidance for energy standards internationally. It's where it's kind of if you want to know like oh where's where's energy code going. Well, that's where it's going is passive house. And it, the idea is you take 
um, you know, your energy loads in a building and reduce them by about 70% by focusing on the envelope. So super insulation, uh, triple pane windows and doors, um, really airtight, and then these advanced ventilation systems. And, you know, we started getting past us really early and everything we do is modeled in, in the passive house um, software. So we basically design build everything with passive house in mind. We rarely certify to passive house anymore. Um, occasionally it's when our clients really want us to. We have noticed there's a diminishing return sometimes between really close to passive house and actually certified passive house, depending on orientation, because free energy is counted in the model. So your passive solar energy you're gaining from the sun counts um, and is a big, big factor. And so sometimes you don't have the orientations, you have too much shading, you have all these things that, you know, the only way to overcome it is to maybe go to like super duper insulated and quadruple, we've actually done quadruple pane um, oh. windows. <laughs> but the, co the cost is much higher relative. Yeah, and the cost, that's where the diminishing return can come in. And so we scratch at every kind of, um, I think, boundary in how you optimize a building from um, not just an energy efficiency standpoint, but from a health standpoint as well. And it's been an, um, an evolution. And certainly the business side has been an evolution too, because at uh, 26, uh, when I started the business, you know, I had a lot to learn. <laughs> I had taken small business management in undergrad and um, I was very confident, I'm very good at spreadsheets, really good at math and thought, you know, that's, and you know, I, um, I like I'm gregarious enough, I think, and like people enough, <laughs> but I didn't have all the leadership qualities and skills that I needed. So there are lots of books and things later and um, that influenced, you know, how, how we lead now. I think the first decade was, you know, just figuring out who, what, what our product was and why. And then the next decade is, you know, leadership. And Let's talk about that a little. So, but just you, you on your website, you also, which is greenhammer.com, um, you also talk about net zero buildings. Is there a difference between net zero buildings and passive buildings? Or are they um, ways of saying Not necessarily. Thing? They're not mutually exclusive by any means. And so we've tended to simplify in the last maybe five, six years and just refer to zero energy or net zero energy buildings because I think more and more people are understanding what that is. Passive house, I think, still confuses, especially when you talk across generations. Mm -hmm. People who are, you know, um, uh, X generation and older might be thinking of passive solar homes from the 70s, which is a bit like passive house, but it's very different. Those are dynamic homes. Um, and then others who just don't know the term at all and maybe have heard of zero energy. And zero energy is really a home that can produce as much renewable energy as it consumes in a year. So, you know, your ability to offset all of your energy needs with solar panels. And then that would include any type of cooking, heating, um, cooling energy. So typically they're natural gas free homes. Um, and, you know, a passive house doesn't necessarily need to be. And net zero energy, you know, in certain areas, you're allowed to offset the natural gas with PV, but, um, you know, we, we kind of take the more standard approach of going all electric, and that has a lot to do with, from a health perspective as much as it does from a carbon impact um, perspective. And yeah, the you can have a lot of zero energy ready homes, meaning that you've got the, um, the space on a roof that can fit enough solar panels that would offset your energy. And it is a lighter standard, I would say, from an envelope standpoint, you know, how far you take the insulation um, and air tightness uh, than passive house would be. You can be, as you're moving along the passive, like toward passive house, you know, you start out with a code home and you need, you know, in Portland anyway, our average size um, lot is about 5,000 square feet. And, you know, a typical home might have a thousand square foot footprint. 2,000 square feet, maybe one on top, 1,000 on top of another. Well, it's standard home is going to need about 4,000 square feet of solar panels. <laughs> so oh. it's basically your entire building lot, right? And so as you move toward passive house, a passive house might only need, 
you know, 20% of its roof in solar panels, right? Okay. And where we're kind of at is like, if we can do, um, you know, anywhere from 150% to 100 of the roof is what you need. That's kind of the zero energy realm most homes end up in. Um, nice. And so some of those, you know, zero energy, maybe building envelope and energy savings light buildings will have like one roof pitched entirely to the south. And if you look at our work, we'll definitely um, be, you know, worshiping the sun a little bit too, but we'll have gable roofs where just half of the roof has solar panels, um, that sort of thing. And that, uh, you know, it's all about getting your energy loads low enough so that that works. So now the not, business itself. So how many of you are there now in your business? Because you started with uh, you going around just doing handyman work and what you're, yeah. you're over 25 or so now, aren't you? Uh, yeah, we're in our mid thirties. It's down from 2019 was a little, we had, we had peaked a bit more. Um, we contracted through the pandemic yeah. um, a little bit and, but yeah, we're now about 36 staff right now. And uh, I actually had about that many in 2006. We were at the time self-performing everything. And that was a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> Downsize then too, but uh, it was a very different model then. Now uh, we have architects on staff and um, project managers um, you know, construction superintendents, field um, carpenters, lead carpenters through, they have carpenters one, two, three, these levels that you can move through from a professional development standpoint, architects one, two, three. Um, we have kind of multiple levels in a few positions. And then, you know, our leadership team uh, and our um, controller and myself, but yeah, it's, um, it's evolved quite a bit. One of the things, you know, I, I didn't mention about what we do and the product is that, you know, when you do these passive house buildings, we make them super insulated. And when you um, make them airtight, and I did mention the ventilation system, but what we realized is that when you control the climate like that and inside, you know, not only is it like comfort really just superior, but your air quality becomes really superior. And uh, that has become such an easier sale now post like epic wildfires in the west than oh, it was yeah. you know um even five years ago so your systems because, are able to filter that out yeah so you can have you're you're kind of shelf you're very resilient in these buildings um which is completely unique from almost any other type of you know uh of system and so i, I think you know you're you're, we're moving into this level of uncertainty, you know, uh, more and more as we, you know, climate change is becoming more real to everyone and apparent. The extremes of climate and um, air quality issues related to that, I think it's just a matter of time before, yeah, these types of buildings are basically going to be a core requirement um, for people's health. Now, when you when you set out to do this, you know, you said you, you said on your website you wanted to prove it's a good way of doing business um, to the extent you're comfortable discussing this. Like, do you feel your profitability has been sufficiently rewarding for you to, to take on the challenges you have? Like, can you have you have you felt that you have proven that this is a, a, a profitable, effective way of doing a business? You know, it's um, yes and no, <laughs> I think it's my answer to that question. I we've had internal debates some years about maybe we should be a nonprofit, um, you know, and that you know you look at our P and L sometimes and and question you know should we be investing this much into training and workshops for staff um, should we be investing you know as much as we do in um, you know, community engagement. And, you know, the more I kind of go through business and my life, more I realize like, you know, profitability is important and it's necessary for the business. And we've proven over 20 years that we're able to do that. <laughs> we're able to stay profitable, to grow um, and have a healthy bottom line. And we've run through some pretty tough times. 
I would, you know, 2009 was not profitable at all. Yeah. And it dragged for a few years that way. Um, 2020 was not profitable for us. And we were lucky that our government had PPP loans. Um, you know, we've had some tough times where I think if we'd been a more traditional business, maybe we would have had um, more cash capital to, you know, float through some of those times than we did. But what we had otherwise was a super committed staff and uh, clientele. And so I think that's also the difference. I'm, in 20 years, I've seen a lot of businesses come and go in my industry, in the green building industry, but also just in the building industry period. Right. And I've seen businesses kind of absorb in green building and then push that away um, because maybe it was too burdensome. Um, and, you know, that's where I think we're unique is we just have always kind of kept that hyper focus. We take every project and and do whatever we can to optimize it from from a health standpoint and from an environmental standpoint as much as we possibly can. And we do see, when we see health and say health, we mean it very holistically. The health of a community is a huge part of that. Um, you know, how you impact a community with buildings is a significant part of the work. And it's not, it's probably one of that. Like if you're building a house, how does that impact community? Well, you have um, Yimbies and Nimbies. <laughs> yes, in my backyard, no in my backyard. Right. Um, you have serious and severe, um, you know, fiscal discrepancies, uh, economic, social economic um, discrepancies. And in Portland, you know, we have a really horror, like horrible racial history here um, where just um, explicit racism from, you know, the, the government and the city of Portland, um, you know, pushing black families out of neighborhoods to put in things like our I-5 corridor or um, our Lloyd Center or put in where our Blazers play basketball now and the Rose Quarter those types of buildings um, all displaced spe very specifically black families. Um, and so the few areas that those black families were kind of pushed to and, and you know, literally I'm talking thousands of homes just taken by um, uh, the city and, um, and, you know, really were very, uh, very little contribution paid towards any of those families. And so building in neighborhoods or around neighborhoods like that, of course, can be, um, you know, very traumatic for some of those families specifically. Mm -hmm. And I think we've seen some of a lot of that in the protests in Portland, a lot of that's kind of coming up, and I think is maybe part of a healing process that started. <clears throat> um, you know, green buildings often are kind of a an initial sign of gentrification into a neighborhood too, right. where, you know, you might be um, flying in on your like green horse and everyone's like, oh, this is such an amazing project. project. And meanwhile, it's, you know, um, a home that's two or three times the price of the median home in that neighborhood. And, you know, there may be black families renting in that neighborhood. <clears throat> um, and now you're going to be pushing up rents. All those things have to be like discussed and figured out. Um, and, you know, we've. And so how does that affect like, your decision making? Like if you decided, for instance, not to take on a project because it might have that effect or is it more about community engagement as you're doing that? Like it's, it's oh. wonderful that you have that sensitivity, but at a practical level, like, okay, so we're, somebody has hired us to build a house in that neighborhood. Yep. How does that impact your decision making? Uh, community engagement, right out of the gate. That'll be our first thing that we'll say is like, hey, because they also don't want to be a target either, right? And so, what can we do? Um, and you know, and to it's an interesting space because you know sometimes the people that you want to um, be sensitive toward and isn't really the ones that are having the biggest problem with you coming into that neighborhood either. So you have to figure out who that is too and have those discussions, but also recognize you're not gonna be um, able to make everyone happy all of the time. 
but to be sensitive where it's appropriate, right? Yeah. And so um, people don't understand the complex. I was involved years ago in in Toronto. There are what are called priority neighborhoods that receive yeah. uh, developmental attention, and I was involved in some mediation between. Uh, the city's planning department and a community housing project and things like this and the the, the complexity of you know density requirements and they're trying to do mixed use so that by having you know places that people would spend money on that would then finance community centers and and you know low-cost housing within one community so it'd be an integrated neighborhood and it's a very complex set of discussions to have you know, yep. just just from a physical infrastructure, how many sewers do we need to have that level of, of density? And then how do you, you know, tra traffic flows and, you know, integration of, you know, mixed income communities? It's 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 a lot to, to take into account. It's not just putting up buildings. Yeah. A cultural look, you know, of the building, because, um, yeah, uh, green buildings can tend to look pretty white. <laughs> there are also in certain neighborhoods that are historic, you know, they look way too modern or spaceships or whatever else that you get. And so um, yeah, community engagement is a really important part. Um, that affect your design? Like, will you, will you <laughs> unwhite the design? Uh, as much as maybe a community would provide feedback about what they'd like to see, yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, within a client's kind of comfort zone. So there's, there, you know, there might be, um, what might seem like an infinitesimal nod, but it's a nod in, uh, in a direction. And I think that that's just super important. Um, you know, they're tough conversations, they're conversations that need to happen. And I think communities only grow stronger when you start opening up these conversations. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and some, some places might just have too much trauma um, to really just to go there. At least for us right yeah. now but just on a slide, uh, yeah one of the one of the things that i was i wanted to ask you about um you know whether you like them or hate them one of the things elon musk did that was really interesting with tesla right was you know pre pre-tesla green cars or electric cars were like prius they were ugly but you had to kind of be into the cause to want to get a green car or, a, or an electric car when tesla came along there were a whole lot of buyers who didn't give a rats behind whether it was electric or not, it was just, that's a, that's a freaking good car. Yeah. <laughs> and I've seen your, like some of your designs, you know, on your website, they're beautiful. Like the homes are beautiful homes, not just, yep. so is your market, like, are they all, you know, converts to the cause or are there people who are just, no, nah, I like your design and I like the cost savings associated with this passive and whether it's green, not green, doesn't like who are you, are you restricted to a, uh, you know, banner waving, hardcore, I'm into the cause, or is it, or is it expanding to be just a, it's, it's expanded. And so, you know, I think at the beginning, it was definitely the banner waving. And I think the hard part for me now is that, um, you know, and I recognized along the way that we needed, you know, I wanted our stuff to just be amazing. I wanted our work to be you know, to not just promote health and protect the planet, but to be really beautiful um, so that it would just attract people to the work that we do. And once you're inside these homes, the experience of living in a home like this, it's you might, it's also maybe relation, you, know, you can relate it to cars where you're like, oh, I rode in this Mercedes. It was so quiet. And like the door when it closed, it's like, oh, I really, you know, um, they're real converts in the car industry with certain brands. And that's what I want. Uh, I wanted and, you know, for Green Hammer, because the experience in living these spaces is foundationally different. And it's like that. It's like the windows and the doors and how they operate. And it's the quietness and it's the air quality and all of these things that you don't realize are, it's like stuffy or dusty or whatever, um, or cold and hot and dry. Uh, that you just don't get in these types of buildings. So I, uh, in 2000, after the, the Great Recession, we started bringing in our licensed architects and to elevate the design and really um, to push you know, our, our image um, further. Because what I was also seeing is like, you know, materials costs always escalate. 
Um, and as you're kind of doing these passive house buildings, you needed someone who's like a hardcore banner waiver to pay the type of premium. It's maybe only about 10%, but that it's 10, that's 10% 10 within an already premium area because you're custom building this thing. You're not doing 50 of them at a time. You're, you're creating this product for specifically for this person, right? And you can imagine trying to do a car that way. Right. right. Like, oh, I'm going to build you. Yeah, we'll build you a Tesla, just one, though. <laughs> um, so we, um, we knew we, we needed to attract some um, bigger clients also, for, to be frank, too, so we can start to better understand our own product and how to optimize it. Because then you can start to move away from like everything is completely individualized to, well, let's really start to um, standardize what we're doing as much as we possibly can and and then like get to okay we're doing these high-end homes for people who just love the work that we're doing and let's learn from that so that we can deliver back to kind of maybe the banner waivers um, who tend to not uh, have the level of disposable income necessary to to purchase a, a premium home right and so in a lot of ways i really do follow that logic, um, the Tesla logic of, okay, let's enter the market at the high end and let's proof, you know, proof of concept and then let's deliver uh, at a more cost-effective level. And so- Well, there's something interesting to, about it because it creates something aspirational. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's something, and and yeah, I mean, it becomes what the cool kids have, right? Yeah, very much, yeah. Uh, is, is, is there an opportunity to do for your business or has it been explored like a kind of development model where you would have like, you know, 10 townhouses that are cookie cutter. So it would actually be, you know, more yeah. cost effective. To and do we, we are looking at projects like that right now, of course, you know, and we've never been more as we evolve, I keep pushing on cost and how to be um, more and more affordable while you're in a market that's, really still just decades behind where it should be so there's quite literally things you just do on a path like a net zero or passive house type building um, that you don't even do in a standard home you know because you're, you have an air tightness layer you've got a ventilation system you have these things that standard home just does not have right um, and so there are just real costs there's extra insulation all of those things and so it, you know, how do you kind of make it more and more efficient has been um, a real goal of mine. And so, yeah, the townhome projects and things has been, you know, right now, like, oh, this is, <laughs> this is so good relative to everything else, but the relative cost of everything has just gone up, right? So right. Uh, that becomes particularly challenging for that market, much less so for the higher end market. Um, that said, I still feel confident we're going to um, continue to pierce that market and have an impact where the next, um, you know, what we've been working on recently is, you know, for a few years now, we kind of dug into back in 20, 2010, we did our first panelized project. That means where you, you basically prefabricate the walls um, in you know, maybe roof and floor system in a warehouse, and then deliver it to the site and assemble it on site. Um, what we found at that time is that we weren't saving any money, but we were able to save some time because we were able to basically do that in a warehouse while we do the foundation at the same time, bring it all out, land it, and move forward much more quickly. Um, but at the time when we penciled it out, it was just a premium. It was still only going to cost a bit more. And as we were trying to talk to clients about it, we couldn't get anyone to do it. Um, meanwhile, I've also, in the, my history as a business owner, I've had offshoots of my company I had green paint <laughs> just like when we because we got into you know paints early on were tough to deal with the uh, um you know eco-friendly low voc zero voc paints and so we specialized in that and suddenly it became a service and then started doing cabinets and furniture and we had this whole like tree collection business in the urban city trees we had urban timber works and a whole mill this whole thing but one of the things I learned about my cabinet and furniture shop is I needed a lot of cabinet and furniture clients to make that shop work. Um, it was a whole other business. And manufacturing business is different than the service industry. And we've gotten good at the service side. So we've 
over the past six years, my leadership team and I discussed, um, you know, should we get it, start a panelizing shop? And in the end we landed on, you know, that's another business. We either shift and do that business or what we can do is try and find relationships, um, people who are looking to do panelizing and let's be there, let's be a design builder for them. Um, so, you know, we can still do the earthwork and the foundations, the on-site assembly, and then um, finish out these homes, but we could also deliver these homes faster. And if we can deliver them faster, that's we can- That's value to people when they're waiting. That's value. That can, time is literally money, especially in our industry, yeah. uh, where there's big construction loans and interest rates and things like that. And just so, a homeowner who wants to get in their home, once they've made that decision that they're doing it, the sooner they get in, the happier they are. Yeah, exactly. So we're, um, we have a few projects on the books. One, one's a large multifamily project, large for us, uh, 24 homes, 24 units, and uh, there's commercial retail space. And, and that one we're hoping to use, as, um, it's not a full panelized product, but it's basically these, uh, it's, uh, it's called BAMCOR. It's two um, uh, bamboo, uh, partial bamboo uh, plywood panels that basically become an interior wall and exterior wall of your exterior wall, <laughs> right? In, interior and exterior side of your exterior wall. And it's uh, basically just open. And you fill the whole thing with cellulose or whatever insulation. We like cellulose because it's low carbon um, and a good insulator and good at managing moisture. But the um, we should be able to assemble the building a few weeks faster overall. And the building should be much straighter, square overall, uh, and more seismically resistant. But it'd be the first one in Oregon. So the challenge there is getting that through permitting. And so that one may or may not move forward on this round. And then the other projects, a single family home, and we partnered up with uh, a local um, panelizing company that's just a startup. And we're hopefully run a bunch of homes through them eventually but we're going to see how this first one goes. Um, there are a lot of good panel companies up in your neck of the woods, but on the other side. So out here in um, near Vancouver, there's panel companies and there are some panel companies out in Colorado, but no one really in Oregon in this area. So we're trying to start those relationships and get those going because I, I do think that's the way of the future um, for custom homes. Modular is also, you know, um, away, but particularly for the custom home world and or even townhome space, I think we'd be well served with that type of product. Right. Now, um, one of the things you've done that's interesting as well is you've your organization, you've got a real commitment to you referenced it in terms of community engagement, but just in terms of your team and everything else around justice, equity, diversity, inclusion. How is that manifested in the business? Well, you know, I think I guess I take pride in our company culture. I mean, we want to make sure that people feel welcome and safe to express their ideas. I think that's super important. That always has been an important thing for me. Um, a defensive conversation just isn't very effective, right? right. So you want um, you want to have a space where problems are addressed and met with curiosity and not blame, right? And it's a very human condition to make mistakes. We all are going to make mistakes and that's okay. Right. And we all are going to disagree at times and that's okay, but we need to have the curiosity and the candor to kind of um, uh, work through those issues. I think when we established our company values, one of the things that I had in my mind was Peter Lanchoni's uh, five dysfunctions of a team. I don't know if you ever read that book, but oh, yeah. it kind of moved you from trust through results and then we've kind of piled in other things like Brene Brown's vulnerability series. And then, um, you know, Craig Weber's uh, sweet spot, um, you know, conversational capacity. And I think all, you know, combining all of those things, like how you have healthy conflict is uh, Craig Weber's piece on conversational capacity and hitting the sweet spot where, you know, people like me have enough curiosity because I people like me tend to talk a lot, <laughs> but I need to be curious about those people who aren't talking and get what they're not saying out to me and tell, ask them like, hey, shoot some holes into this. Tell me what's 
what am I missing? You know, mm-hmm. um, where, where am I wrong on this? And in listening to those and really, um, you know, trying to tease out even more from what they're saying instead of instantly being defensive. And then, you know, having that candor, those people who are quiet, really letting them know that candor is an important critical aspect of decision-making and that you need to be able to come out and say what your, um, what your position on, is on something. And so even just the language on, um, in some of these cases, we'll be like, okay, what, what is your position on this? What is your thinking versus, you know, does everyone agree with what I said? Right. <laughs> everyone does agree. Everyone's going to be like, uh-huh, yeah. And then you've got, yeah. you know, you've just seated two of the next staff that are going to, you know, leave. Um, and they're right. telling you why. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I, I was reading something recently, just because you've been overt about the diversity and inclusion thing. I thought it was a really interesting distinction somebody made. Maybe it's more <laughs> academic than practical. I'm not sure. Um, but they're making the argument that, inclusion to include has within it still a power dynamic that there is somebody in power that is choosing to allow you to be included yeah which which was an it was an interesting distinction and so they said we should be talking about belonging instead of including because including is sort of like okay it's almost like the difference between acceptance and tolerance yeah you know like yeah that's one of the things we talk about is a place where you feel like you belong i mean i um we had a had a Jedi committee uh, in the company since 2016, and that was a result of everybody our, knows Jedi means yeah, justice, just, yeah, justice inclusion. <laughs> it's equity, not a- yeah, inclusion and diversity. So I, um, you know, I've always had a bit of a personal chip on my shoulder. You know, I grew up in a uh, I grew up in Rover, Vermont, in a trailer. My, both my parents were orphans and, um, you know, my, my mother, my grand, my mother's mother was, um, Mexican American and, uh, Sicilian and, you know, just the Vermont's very, very white. So, um, I mean, I think it is the whitest state in the, the nation but I had a social economic chip on my shoulder. And I also saw the, um, pre- the, the racism that my mother's family kind of e- experienced. And I've, um, I think that was one of the things I was angst about as a teenager and thought was just wrong um, about how humans treat each other in, in general. And so to me um, kind of, this trauma that this generational trauma um i have a relationship with that and i recognize it has has nowhere near the degree um that you would have if you're an indigenous or black family um here in the united states or canada even Mm -hmm. um and you know i remind myself of that a lot and I, i do think you know, the concept of equity is huge. You know, the realization of the delta, the difference between equity and equality, (laughs) right? That there's all this stuff that needs to happen to get to equity um, before you can ever even talk about equality, right? We're just not on the equal playing field at all. And you have to explore these words and you have to explore things like, Wait, is there a power dynamic in in inclusion? Should we say belonging instead? Or, you know, and we've had a lot of those debates over the years. And, you know, we still go with the the um, Jedi, <laughs> diversity yeah. and inclusion. We also think inclusion or uh, the sense of belonging um, is enormously important and can be your number one um, attractor for great talent or your biggest issue as far as attrition in the in a company. And what do you think is key to to giving a sense of belonging? Because and this is this is for any business even those that are not necessarily, you know, on have a have a social benefit organization like yours but just want to do good in the world and have a good place for people to work, making people feel like they belong is important, which sounds like lovely, yes, how, but how do you do that? Like how do you create that sense of belonging? Well, I think it's, it starts, it definitely starts with leadership. It starts with me um, too. And, 
you know, it starts with the day one and people coming in the door and feeling celebrated. You know, I think that's an important part of, um, of feeling like you belong, you know, that you're welcomed into the community um, from everyone. And I, that's a cultural thing. You've got to work and make effort to do that, to make sure that people feel welcomed and that they belong and that it's not, um, that, that they were hired for a reason and not necessarily that, uh, you know, we want people to earn it too. Right? Yeah, in for the sure. End. Um, but we also want to celebrate those, those folks coming on. I think companies sometimes do a lot to celebrate people leaving and, you know, don't do enough to celebrate people while they're there. And so I think that is super important and then regularly celebrating people. And so um, we have uh, at our annual retreat, we have an awards ceremony, which are design builder of the year awards. And so we have different categories and we'll often engineer those categories for specific people, <laughs> you know, but it's, it's a vote. It's a, you know, it's a democracy, but um, it did so happen that the person I had as for in my mind for the, our magic wand category, he got it. Uh, <laughs> you know, you get these these ideas of uh, how you can celebrate different people for their particular expertise or skills or what they contribute. Yeah, uh, and I think that's really really important. We also do design builder of the month every month, and so it's just a little gift card, and you know, it's not it's nothing too um, outstanding of a reward, but it's everyone celebrates it. Everyone wants to know like who's who's going to be the design builder of the month and why, and what do I need to do to um, to to exemplify that. And that's really a celebration of the company values um, as much as anything, but also um, doing what we can to get a sense of like a family or a team or um, and what you belong to, right? Um, and a culture of, of belonging. And, and then listening too, you know, to be frank, if um, we're, whenever we have, um, I think it's important whenever we diversify the staff more and more as we do that, making sure we're talking to, um, you know, people of color and women um, specifically that we're bringing into the organization that they feel like they've got someone that they can talk to and, and express any concerns that they might have and that they have a space where they can speak, you know, um, come and speak safely or freely with me too but there, there's someone um, that they're comfortable with right out of the gate about any concerns they might have to go to this person. Um, and we do let them early on kind of choose that person. It may or may not be their supervisor. And, uh, and that, you know, everything's kind of kept, everything is kept in confidence. And so they, they can have, you know, a seat with me or just share feedback to me anonymously um, however it's desired, but, you know, doing whatever we can to make sure there's feedback loops, I think is also super important. Yeah. Um, and doing whatever we can to make people feel welcome. And it's honestly always evolving. Like there's not a formula that I found that's a perfect for, okay, you come in the door week two, you belong. You feel like, yep, this is it. I, you know, you know, um, some just love it, hit it, it's great, everything about it. And then others, um, you know, it takes more time. And, you know, and then there's always those that just aren't a great fit. And it it might be culturally too, but it's more of how they treat other people is where our concerns come in. It's behavior, you know, that type of behavioral issue. Um, but yeah, and then you have to deal with that quickly. That's another thing because I don't belong in the team that this person belongs on, right? That's another thing that can happen. So all of it, I think is super, super important to creating a, a healthy dynamic team. I'm glad you have that kind of pay attention to that at that level of detail. And you've been really, we could probably talk for hours, but uh, <laughs> you've been pretty generous with your time. Um, we obviously to finish off with just a few rapid fire questions. Um, so first one is, uh, you know, what's one decision or action that most helped you get where you are? One decision or action that most helped me. I think, I think for me, there's a, 
there's a hope and a confidence that we can impact change. You know, the one the one decision for me was frankly just to do it and just to start this business. Um, and if and you then, had to do it over again, would you? What would you have changed? Uh, I would have fast forwarded. You know, um, I don't think I don't think we'd be as great as we are now without having the gone through what we went through to get here and what I've gone through to get here. Uh, there's so much learning, so much that you know, and a lot of that's been over time. I wish I, you know, right out of the gate could be where I'm at today. You know, from a knowledge standpoint, yeah. an experience standpoint, I've got that right now. I've got the we have our standard operating procedures. I've got basically I could drop a book behind me and someone could run off with Green Hammer and have a successful business. I'm certain of it um, because we have everything figured out and we have a procedure and a process. And, um, you know, we have our we have everything that we need now. And so I think attracting investors and everything else would be, you know, I like now I'm like, oh, here's here's what we um, here's what we've got. I think now we're at a point where it's more like, okay, well, we can do this on our own. Um, but then I think I could have really, you know, accelerated. So what's one aspect of running a business that you've yet to master or are struggling with, however you want to frame that? Boy, <laughs> preparing for uh, the unknowns. Yeah, they just keep on coming. <laughs> right? yeah, the last couple of years have been a master class in that. Master class in that. I know between uh, recessions caused, you know, either the 2009 or this more recent recession and the maybe a future recession, you know, the social dynamics in Portland have been really um, complicated. And there's been so many things that have caused different, you know, delays. Um, supply chain issues, all of these things, you know, have been such a um, struggle. And you're the hindsight's so clear, like, oh, you know, it used to be all about lean, lean everything. And now it's like, well, maybe we should store some things. <laughs> right. And um, yeah, I think getting, I'm, I'm very happy with how we're in, having an impact. Yes, profitability has been challenging these last few years. And I want, um, I'd like to just have a much more consistent flow for the company and the staff. And I think some of it's just quite frankly, unavoidable. It's hard to have good flow when you hit hit by a pandemic. It's hard to have good flow when you're having massive supply chain issues. Right. Um, but the more you get hit by these things, the more you adjust and pivot and um, get better. And so I think, you know, that's, that's really us moving forward is continuing to be super nimble and smart and, and lean in all the right ways. Right. Uh, so what's yeah. one personal quality uh, that you most had to improve or overcome? Oh, patience. <laughs> you would not believe how often that's the answer. <laughs> I am so impatient. I like, I think everything moves too slowly. And I, um, it's one of the reasons why now I don't go out. If I go to job sites, I just go out to like celebrate everybody and I, oh, nice job. And uh, like, so I stand around too long and it does this. It's not unique to any site that we're doing. It's, I can go anywhere and everything's moving too slow. Anything I see is slow. So not, uh, not I, ran, I was a track athlete. That's my excuse. Sorry. What's that? So but let me ask you, like, so you, you say that's something you have to overcome, but is, mm -hmm. but is it actually, was that an obstacle or a driver? Like you're, you're, I think it was a driver. I think it's a huge advantage. I mean, I also excel at getting a lot done quickly right? and, you know, my lack of patience maybe with myself, which I'm very, I don't, you know, um, I'm not the, for me, I can beat myself up about speed or I'm fine. I can take a beat <laughs> and uh, I just I like to push myself to do more. And I, I think that's a lot of it too. Like I was saying, I was a track runner in college and 
uh, athlete for most of my life and still am. And I like a challenge. I love a challenge. And I think, you know, being a B Corp and one of the best in, in the world <laughs> from a B Corp standpoint, impact standpoint, um, that's a huge challenge to me. And I, I love that challenge. So and, is that your, so the next question was going to be, what's the quality that most contributed to your success? Is it that? Oh that? yeah. All the challenges, all the people say, all the naysayers and, um, you know, I think we need examples about where we need to go and working examples. And I think we, we provide that in spades and there's some, you know, so many solutions are right there in front of us and we just need to ad adopt them. And I think we're one of those solutions. We provide one of those solutions. We're not the only one in the industry um, providing those types of solutions, but I, I do think these types of building solutions, these zero energy, passive house influenced homes and buildings that focus on health and air quality, um, you know, water resiliency, all of these things are just becoming more and more critical. And they also help us get out of this climate crisis because buildings are 40% of the carbon problem mm. and they can be a huge part of the solution and we're showing we're like hey here's like here's solutions right here uh market rate solutions and if we can do that uh successfully enough and we can gain enough um you know foothold in the affordability sector too in affordable homes then i think we'll be riding a pretty amazing wave here pretty mm. shortly so nice well that's it's a good place to end off because that's actually what this this podcast is all about is trying to actually show the role models for people who can do things a better way you know make make money have a successful business but also having a positive impact and you absolutely are a great example of how to do that so i thank you very much for your time to be with us great well thank you warren i really appreciate Where can people that. find you uh greenhammer.com so in portland oregon <laughs> all righty thanks so much Okay, take care. Good Bye -bye. luck. Hi, it's Warren Coughlin here. Thank you so much for listening to the Business That Matters Spotlight. If you're a successful, values-driven entrepreneur who makes a difference while making a profit and you'd like to be on this program, please visit warrencoughlin.com slash podcast slash apply. That's warren, C-O-U-G-H-L-I-N.com slash podcast slash apply. If you got something out of this interview, would you do us a favor and share this episode on social media? Just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on the socials. If you know someone that would be a great guest, tag them on social media to let them know about the show and include the hashtag Business That Matters Spotlight. I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. We're regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. Want to know more? Go to our website, warrencoglin.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, facebook.com slash a business that matters, and Instagram at warren.coglin. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.